You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America and become a successful resident or fellow in the speciality of your dreams. Dr. Alonso Osorio is board certified and residency trained in both emergency and family medicine and will be bringing you 20 years of his personal experiences, struggles and motivation. We'll be chatting with people like you to talk about the lessons they've learned along their personal path, how to make an impact and how we can all benefit from it. Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show. Hi, guys. Welcome back. This is uh, Dr. Alonso Osorio with OsorioMD.com. And well, I am back after a couple of weeks. Let me fill you in on what's going on. As you know, I found a new job in Texas. I've been commuting back and forth in between the city of Tampa, Florida and Tyler, Texas. It's been a fantastic new role, new challenges, new opportunities. And before we get into the episode, let me tell you this. If you ever thought that having an adverse outcome, for example, at work, like in my personal case that I lost my job, that I was let go by COVID reasons, and there is always something better and much more benign, healthier, greater, somewhere else. You just kind of hold on to the past and that's what happened. It's amazing the opportunities that life gives you and to feel appreciated and feel that you belong to something bigger and more important is remarkably fulfilling. And that's how I feel with my new job. Obviously, I don't go into details about what kind of practice I'm doing or where I am, but you know that I continue practicing emergency medicine. I've been an emergency physician now for 20 and a half years, and it's been a fantastic life here in America. The move has been difficult. I know what you guys, many of you will be and are going through of moving from whatever part of the world into the United States. It is even difficult moving your own family within the United States. We're living in a small rental apartment in Tampa, Florida, and next week we will be moving into Tyler, Texas. We have a house there. Everything is taken care of. So I'm looking forward to have my family. What else? New headphones, new Bluetooth set, better communication. Got it for you guys so you can hear me better and understand me better. And well, I'm staying humble. That's one of those things that I tell all the people that I do coach that you might must stay humble. Some people presenting to this interview is interviews thinking that they're the last Coca-Cola in the desert. That's how we say it in Colombia. La última Coca-Cola del desierto. The last Coca-Cola in the desert. Which simply means that they think and they present themselves as they're the latest, greatest, the only thing that has ever existed of its kind. And not being humble will get you in trouble in many aspects of life. And I think despite anybody's accomplishments and anybody's uh, richness, wealth, if you lose your capacity to remain and stay humble, people will lose respect for you and people will stop liking you. 
And you cannot imagine how important it is to communicate and connect with people. And if you stop doing that by losing the capacity to remain humble, it is a disgrace. I would say, specifically in my personal job, I rely on connectivity with the patients, my staff, from the paramedics, nurses, physicians alike, consultants. And remember, many people communicate, very people connect. And I learned that from John Maxwell. Many people uh, communicate, very few people connect. And that book is full of goodness all around, 365, all every page. It is fantastic. So for those applicants, for the next interviewing cycle, I highly recommend you to read that book because you cannot imagine the importance of communicating and connecting with people. And here we are. This is a combination system that I'm trying to do in between the visual and the audio. So there's going to be a version of this episode as well on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, every single downloadable platform that you might have access to. That's where you will find me. Just look under Alonso Osorio, A-L-O-N-S-O, last name O-S-O-R-I-O. And if you put in the search engine of the app, you will find me and then the Foreign International Medical Graduate podcast will come around. And let's resume. Uh, I remember that the last episode, we closed it up with with the uh, issue of timeliness. And we were talking about the few tips that a new physician shall consider to avoid in the USA. And this is the part number two of the big no-no's for any physician in the United States. Just to recap, we spoke about the disruptive physician. We gently touched on sexual harassment, self-prescribing, family prescribing, and uh, prescribing documentation, ethics, interaction between males and females, compliance with CME, drug, alcohol abuse issues, DUIs, criminal activities, misdemeanors, any prosecutions, a few tips on divorce, child support, and alimony and child custody battles. A huge one. We spoke about falsifying medical records and EMR reviews for yourself or other people, interaction with physicians and colleagues alike, and what is considered an unprofessional behavior in this new era, and social media posting and implications that it will have for work. So here we go. This one's... Uh, We'll discuss a few more topics to wrap it up with part two, or we can call it Big Physicians No-No's Part Two. Remember, there is lots of actions that are punishable by the state uh, medical board and local agencies. So you are aware the every state has a Department of Health, and it has a Florida Department of Health, and they have a Florida Medical Board, and they belong to the local agencies, police, etc. They report that data is publicly accessible, and there is a specific bylaws and regulations on physicians' behavior in the United States, and it's very, very frowned upon having some sort of unethical and professional or criminal behavior that will quickly will be reported across state lines. And this information will have to be disclosed by you, as I said earlier, on 
every application for hospital privileges that you will have. Not only they will ask you, but if any of your peers is or has been made aware of any prior ethical, behavioral situation, when they request the peer review, he will be given the opportunity to actually type in the peer review reference how he feels about you. And this could be somehow biased because people request peer review or letters of recommendation from physicians that consider you a physician of good moral character. And you usually want to approach that people to give you a good letter of recommendation or a peer review. But in general, they could call pretty much anyone. I have personally been at work and I heard recruiters or inter, uh, people that are working to find a new job calling the emergency physician to ask the unit clerk or the nurses on how they felt about the physician's professional behavior uh, or if at any point in time they felt or noticed that the physician was unprofessional in any specific matter. So big deal. Getting back to what I just said, there is many implications from the federal and local state board. Some regulations uh, will be penalized under these specific uh, rules that every state has and call it Medicare fraud, call it federal fraud, call it criminal activities, there will be a specific penalties. If you do drugs, they will send you to the state-specific uh, drug rehabilitation or alcoholism treatment program and you will have to report this for the rest of your life. And it will be a little spot in your history, but it's going to be extremely important that you, you keep that license clean because eventually if you keep messing up, you will lose your license. Give you, let me give you an example. Local physician decides to open a pill mill. A pill mill is what we call a prescription place for narcotics uh, with a self-referral to get outpatient MRIs. By the way, in the United States, the whole pain clinic, motor vehicle accident, MRI, radiology business, and lawyer business is really messed up. There is actually a, a business that drives. You see it on the highways. This is changing topics. You see it on the highways. The lawyers state, hey, you slip and fell, motor vehicle crash, injured. So most insurance companies settle for X amount of money, and they sue thousands of people. So attorneys thrive on those little 10,000, 15,000 fees from every case. But they also partner up with local physicians, radiologists, spine surgeons, neck surgeons. Uh, they partner up with uh, physical therapies, x-ray locations, and some of them decide to open these pain clinics that are affiliated with that. So we all know, many of us walk around with asymptomatic herniated disc and they will do an MRI, for example, on me today that I'm healthy and not having any issues. And they will find a bunch of degenerative herniated discs that I'm not even aware of. And they say, oh, that was related to the accident. That's worth $50,000 plus. I found a spine surgeon and a chiropractor that will get you therapy for 25 sessions. That's worth another 50,000. And then your loss of wages and then your moral turmoil and then they'll say that you need neck surgery and this physician gets a kickback. The attorney pays a kickback or pays for the surgery himself. And then the physician, the patient shows up with this unnecessary surgery on the neck. By the way, I have seen plenty of bad outcomes related to this stuff. It is a really twisted system. So 
One of these physicians gets into this sort of funky business. He gets caught over-prescribing narcotics. He was even prescribing narcotics out of his own car from his Porsche or BMW or whatever, out of the window, writing scripts for narcotics. And the problem is they used to call it the uh, Florida Express. People used to come from Tennessee and uh, Kentucky taking this specific flight one way, coming into Tampa to get their narcotic prescriptions to be sold on those areas, their Dilotic, Oxycodone, Hydrocodone. It is a big deal here in America. It's a big problem. Xanax, you name it. I actually had my own license stolen in San Antonio, Texas, and I'll tell you a story later. But anyway, be careful because these, these actions are punishable and they will lead to licensing termination. And guess what? You won't be able to practice anywhere in the United States. So if you don't have a career backup, you're pretty much screw big time let's move on there's so many things to speak about but need to to keep it short crazy but uh so completeness of medical records and delinquency of medical records a delinquent for me in my country a delinquent is a criminal but delinquent medical records uh, are any outstanding medical records that you haven't completed or finished and every hospital on their bylaws tells you that before you either finish a cycle and you are like me and closing a chapter with one hospital system and going to another one, obviously you think that your medical records are complete, but there is deficiencies, either electronic orders that haven't been signed or medical records that needed to be finalized for them to proceed with one registration keep them away to talk them away for medical legal purposes two for billing and coding and three completeness and overall patients uh, benefits of of having their medical records up to par so you have a specific timeline i think uh, if the, your medical records pass more than two weeks you have first call then within a month a couple calls then they give you a heads up that your hospital privileges will be terminated etc 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 so completeness of medical records is crucial. My advice is don't be lazy, be remarkably proactive at completeness uh, of medical records and working on those within a prompt manner. I would say by the end of your shift, in my personal cases, scribes have changed my life. So if you don't have scribes, you better get some scribes and we can provide you with scribes. So contact me at goscribes.com my operations manager, Ms. Claudia Espinosa, who is a nurse, will contact you and we'll get you set up for that. And I will personally do a site visit. And if you have any questions, just call me. Call me on my personal cell phone. It's right there, available at ghostcribes.com. And we'll be more than happy to fulfill your EMR completeness responsibilities right on time because I think uh, it is crucial for you. So don't lose your hospital privileges for lack of completeness of medical records crucial paperwork electronic paperwork there is uh, a state required cme for licensing certification we already spoke about that a little bit it's not only uh, staying on top with your cme but there is also a state specific cme every two years for any state where you're gonna re renew your license as i mentioned earlier there is a specific requirements make sure that you complete that specific CME that is necessary for licensing renewal. And there is no ifs, buts, or 
any doubts on how to get it done. One more. Prescription of controlled substances. Okay. You guys probably don't know, but in the United States, the Drug Enforcement Administration has five different schedules in which they classify drugs, pharmaceuticals. Let me give you an example. Class one, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamines. You know, class two, narcotics. Class three, certain narcotics or narcotic-like substances like Ultram, Tramadol, that are available. And class four, class five, etc. You can look it up by yourselves. But in general, you you pay, I think as of now, I just paid $180 every two years, $180 every two years for a license from the Drug Enforcement Administration with a state-specific DEA number that regulates and controls every little narcotic prescription pill that you write up. And this is crucial, crucial, super important, because what's going to happen is they're going to count the amount of pills that you prescribe, how often you prescribe them, and you need to look at prescription drug reporting database on every patient before you, you write it up. And the state of Florida, for example, I don't know in Texas what it's going to be like, but in the state of Florida, you cannot prescribe more than three days of narcotics. And if the patient is in a chronic pain contract, you need to write an exception that is for the management of acute pain. And you need to be careful if these patients already have an established pain contract for prescription dispensing by a chronic pain management doctor in the outpatient setting. I had said a lot, but in summary, don't overprescribe because many physicians now are getting involved or are considered in not only criminal but uh, civil cases, uh, lawsuits, because they were found to commit manslaughter by being found responsible for the overdosing and you're getting sued also because you made the patient an addict and that's a bunch of bullshit sorry but it's the truth we write out a narcotic prescription so just don't write them or if you write them you know for me it has to be literally a bone sticking out or some major injury a painful laceration a tendon injury a painful sprain you name it but be remarkably judicious about it patients hate it they give you hospital satisfaction survey scores if you don't give them what they want, because that's in America. They, they think that you're supposed to give them whatever you, they want. But you need to tell them, hey, listen, Mr. X and Ms. Ms. Z and Ms. Y, I have a license to prescribe narcotics. It is not that I don't want to give you something. It is my prescription habit, and you need to respect that. I went to school. I'm paying $180 every two years to the Drug Enforcement Administration, not only to prescribe you, but to rationalize and do a smart prescribing on every little script that I give away to any single patient. I tell them, I am sorry. It is not my fault. I have to protect my license. I have to protect my patients. And despite that, that's something that you want and you would like to have and you think you need, that's not the right treatment for you. And that's just simply, simply truth. Very broad topic and we can speak on narcotic prescribing habits. That's a huge deal. Inappropriate sexual behavior, sexual approach, approaches, any eccentric stuff. As I said, guys, Careful with phones, internet, accessing the computer network with an IP address on your cell phone, with visits to pornographic sites, a changing of uh, inappropriate pictures, texting with stuff, anything that can be seen over your shoulders that could be considered inappropriate. It could be grounds for dismissal. And 
inappropriate sexual approaches to patients, uh, nurses, and colleagues alike. Let me tell you a crazy story, and this is public records. If you if you look under uh, in the New York Post, uh, one of the most prominent emergency physicians that we had in the nation that had a phenomenal website or has a phenomenal website website that was remarkably informational about the number needed to treat. I think it was nnt.com or nnt.org. This physician working for one of the prominent New York universities was found guilty and has been committed to prison due to his personal secretions slash semen was found in the patient's uh, eyelashes, foreheads and body parts. And what was happening is that this doctor was quote, unquote, masturbating at work. And that's the excuse that he gave to the, to the jury, that he was feeling remarkably stressed at work because of the nature of the job that we had. And he was going and taking care of himself in the bathroom and coming up with secretions on his hands and then touching the patients. The problem is that he was putting the patients under procedural sedation with propofol or ketamine and whatever. And the DNA of his secretions match the DNA on the patient's eyelashes or face or body parts. And that's really crazy. And what he was doing is that he was actually masturbating while the patients were under sedation. And nobody witnessed this until a number of patients back to back started complaining about this crazy and professional behavior. And you can read about this. This is news that is on the everywhere. And and he lost his license. He cannot practice medicine anywhere. And you can imagine the significance for a big teaching university in the United States and the implications that this could have in your professional career. Let's uh, talk about business ventures uh, that could break a Stark law, which is the physician sole referral, the anti-kickback statute. And the other one is the civil and monetary penalties law. Big deal on those. Pretty much, this is something that I will highly advise you to go and visit. And the legal terminology is so complicated that what I'm going to do is at the bottom of this episode, I'm going to put the link to the Medicaid, Medicare website, which describe exactly what Stark Law is, the anti-kickback statute is, and the civil and monetary penalties law are consistent of. It's an extremely important concept that I bet many physicians, despite years of practice, don't know about it or have not been told about it. And many of you that are gonna start residency training in the United States next July must be made aware of. So take a look at, read it, be careful, and just feel free to do your own search and navigation about it. Uh, simple terminology, a little bit too complex for me to manage because there is some legality to it. So I'll let you just read it, go over it, and, and you can extract your own conclusions. Emtala, do you guys know what is Emtala? Okay, that's what I'm bound for. In 1986, the Cobra Omnibus Act of 1986 uh, generated by our previous past president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, they came out with the EMTALA Emergency Medicine Treatment and Active Labor Act of 1986, which you, physicians, if you are an intern in internal medicine with your attending, if you're an intern in surgery with your attending, if you're an intern in radiology with your attending, if you're an intern in neurology, etc., etc., and you happen to be on call, if you're a fellow on call, for GI, ophthalmology, whatever you're on call, 
and you're in the roster of the hospital, you are bound to help me help the patient to screen them and participate in the stabilization of an acute condition that represents a threat to their life, organ, baby, mom, etc. And the problem is that this law in 1986 was created with the no, it was an anti, anti-dumping law. Before then, the patients were coming to the doorway if they were illegal immigrants, if they, were too, they had no ability to pay, if they, they couldn't even come into the emergency room and they felt that hospitals were getting by with only trimming the fat and keeping the good patients for themselves. So this law came and now we have to see everyone, but the problem is that there is no funding attached to it. So patients come to the emergency room, we have to see them, we have to do what is called a medical screen exam to determine if they have an acute life-threatening or acute organ-threatening or acute labor-related emergency or any type of emergency. And the emergency is determined by what the patient perceives as being an emergency. It could be nonsense, but you as a physician or qualified provider, a QMP, qualified medical provider, must go into triage and determine if the patient actually needs a workup. Despite their ability to pay, despite the rate, background, ethnicity. So take a look. Every emergency department outside has a huge federal post sign on what EMTALA means. And when you guys are on call, that you guys just think that this is nonsense, that they're going to give you during orientation to talk about EMTALA. It has huge implications for your personal practice. So if you're getting a little disruptive and blocking consultations from the emergency department, I'll tell you the truth. You have the responsibility to get your ass over to the emergency room and help me with the assessment and stabilization of these acute care patients. And careful on about telling the emergency physician to send the patient back to where they came from because that's called dumping. And you cannot refer a patient back to a lower level of care. Cannot be only stay at what you are or go higher, but you cannot transfer a patient to a hospital that has the same capacities and capabilities to treat a patient. It is so robust, it is so complex, and this, this is a civil lawsuit and could cut the capacity of you to serve Medicaid and Medicare. And you will not only incur in criminal civil lawsuit against you, going to, to jail and prison, but you will have significant financial penalties that will not be covered by the medical malpractice insurance. Big deal. So when you see MTALA, don't think it's BS, it's crucial, read about it. And you have responsibilities on that. So there's another thing that is co- called the call schedule and physician responsibilities while on duty. If you have signed up and you belong to a roster of the physician for being on call, not only for MTALA, you need to fulfill that. And you're being paid to be on call. If you're a neurosurgeon, three, four, five, six thousand dollars per night that you're being on call. A surgeon, a thousand dollars for being on call per night. And you're not supposed to schedule your own uh, procedures while you're on call. So these physicians have to be available and be within 30 minutes of ETA or response time, either to call back or respond to the emergency physician's needs or the nurse's needs when you're being requested to be available. So be careful when you're on duty and you're on call. Be careful with drug usage, alcohol usage, and all those things because you'll be in deep trouble if you call in the middle of the night and you need to come into the emergency room. Remember, don't be disrespectful towards us. This doesn't go well. It doesn't go well and people are nasty in the middle of the night. I understand that I just woke you up and you don't want to hear my voice. 
like a cardiothoracic surgeon told me one night, where in the these patients come from at three o'clock in the morning with an aortic dissection. And I said, well, sir, most people do cocaine in the middle of the night during a party. And he developed chest pain after that. And guess what? He has a dissection. Does he have insurance? I said, Obviously not. But you need to come on over here and take care of the patient. And he just cursed at me and at me because I was requesting his presence. And it's part of the job, man. We don't have, as emergency physicians, a fancy job, and everybody hates us because we're requesting your presence. But trust me, if I had the skills to take care of these patients and take care of an aortic dissection and taking care of the patient to the OR, I would have trained in cardiothoracic surgery and take care of that. But you have the skills, you have responsibility, you're getting paid, so get your butt over to the emergency room. One more. We're almost there. A little bit more past than 30 minutes, probably, but we're going to keep it short now. Not reviewing or re big no-no, not reviewing or uh, reading the hospital bylaws. So guess what? Before you join any hospital, they're going to give you a book that tech that is called hospital bylaws. And they usually ask you to check a box and make sure that you acknowledge. If you don't read it or at least glimpse at it, you will be bound when the medical executive committee or the medical staff office calls you that you have uh, broken the bylaws and suddenly your hospital privileges will be terminated. So be remarkably careful on the duties, responsibilities that you have for a hospital healthcare system and for professional behavior, not only for the state medical board, for the local county and city regulations, but also within their own hospital. Three more, practicing beyond the score of your practice. That's, that's a tricky one, that's a tricky one. Practicing beyond the scope of your practice. Let's say, that you are an internal medicine physician and we're seeing a lot of that and they briefly speak about their credentials and their qualifications on their public website for commercial purposes and they consider themselves the specialists in cosmetic procedures i know you probably got a little training a few hours of observership and then injections on procedures in botox and fillers on this and that but but what's going to happen is that there is a big mistake. You're going to help by the same standard of a plastic cosmetic surgeon that has been residency trained and board certified with that. So if you're going beyond your scope of practice, I want to tell you, you better have the proper qualifications experience to justify your proceedings. Because if something goes wrong, guess what? You're going to be in deep trouble and potentially in a medical malpractice lawsuit. In summary, Physicians, doctors, colleagues, friends, avoid anything that seems to be fishy, sketchy, or if you find yourself just double-guessing, avoid it altogether. That's my biggest take-home point. If you think that something is just not right, just don't do it. And one last thing, and this touches uh, personal, let's be honest, and this is something that nobody speaks about, racism in America, gender bias and segregation are palpable. Physicians, doctors, patients alike, nurses are racist. There is racism in America. It's crazy. But uh, the word N cannot be used. My best friend in Colombia is El Negro. And he's a, a Hanna uh, orthopedic surgeon that works in uh, orthopedic surgeon training in a hand fellowship. And I call him El Negro. He's my best friend. In America, nothing like that could be said. There is a loaded, loaded historical background on this, and you guys will be exposed to this rather quick. It's a country of immigrants, you know, 
Indians, Middle Easterns, Hispanics, with the most past recent past president, the racism in this country blew out of proportions, black versus white, the Ku Klux Klan and uh, white supremacist group against the black people, etc. I don't know. It's a rather complex case that I try not to go into. Anti-Hispanics immigration laws, speaking horrible about bad hombres from Mexico. And just, just patients are crazy sometimes. I do remember I just walked into the patient's room and he say, he tells me, hello, Paco, are you the landscaping guy? I say, yeah, sure, tell me about it. I say, Paco, do you want a taco? I don't know. She could have been just crazy or demented, but uh, I'm Dr. Paco now. Anyway, be very careful. There's so many things that you're going to learn along the way. I am still learning. There's so many implications of what it's like to practice in America. You're held by a different standard. So don't screw up. Keep it fun. Keep it joyful. Keep it professional. And whatever you do outside the hospital might affect your personal, professional life and vice versa. So just keep it tight. It's not that you're the owner of your own local convenience store and, and you can get by with stuff. And one more before we close. Pay your taxes. Pay your taxes, otherwise the government will come after you. And trust me, we make pretty good money. And sometimes we, we forget about pay and call Sam's what it's due, and that will easily take you to jail. Guys, we're done with this episode. I hope you liked it. I hope you like this uh, video format. And huge favor, I'm going to ask you, if you like it, or you think someone, medical or non-medical, will benefit from this information, pass it along. Share it. I just do it with the whole purpose of educating you, tell you my own experience, the own struggles that I have lived through, things that I have seen that you shouldn't be doing. And I can assure you, I'm losing thousands of topics and examples here today. But if you got any benefit, just leave me feedback, post a comment, let's start the interaction, subscribe, subscribe to my channel. And any concerns, just uh, reach out to me. Remember, I'm here ready to teach you stuff, advise you, be your mentor, your coach, hold your hand along the way. I know that the interviewing cycle is coming along. I know some of you are spending a lot of money. If the money that you're spending on me is considered expensive, just think it is an investment on yourself and your career, and I'll guide you and help you to make it through the process of becoming a doctor in America. And if you need any personal or professional advice, just hit me up. And we'll start the communication. I appreciate it again. Stay in touch. Thank you.